The Brain Science Podcast is part of sciencepodcasters.org, the place where you can find high-quality science podcasts from a wide variety of fields. Donations from listeners like you make it possible for me to continue to make the Brain Science Podcast freely available to listeners around the world. This is Episode 90 of the Brain Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell. Today we are going to be talking about Antonio Damasio's recent book, Self Comes to Mind, Constructing the Conscious Brain. Here's a quote from page 30. Does knowing how the brain works matter at all for how we live our lives? I believe it matters very much. All the more so if, besides knowing who we presently are, we care at all for what we may become. I chose this quote because it sums up the reason why I make the Brain Science Podcast. Before I get started, I want to remind you that you can get the show notes for this episode, including a free episode transcript at our website at brainsciencepodcast.com. This is also where you can find every episode of the podcast. Another option for getting back episodes is to use the Brain Science Podcast app, which is available for iPhone, iPad, and Android. Listener feedback is very important to me, so don't forget that you can send me email at docartemis at gmail.com. As I mentioned a moment ago, we are going to be discussing Self Comes to Mind, Constructing the Conscious Brain by Antonio Damasio. This book was published in late 2010, but I've decided to discuss it this month because I think it provides an excellent bridge between last month's interview with Evan Thompson and next month's interview with Jock Panksepp. I first spoke with Dr. Panksepp back in episode 65, and he will be returning next month to talk about his new book, The Archaeology of Mind, Neuroevolutionary Origins of Human Emotions. One of my goals today will be to focus on some of the ways that the ideas of Panksepp and Damasio overlap. They both believe that understanding consciousness requires that we take an evolutionary perspective, which is to say that understanding how the brain generates the mind requires an understanding of how the brain has evolved. Because so much of what our brain does has been inherited from earlier life forms. In fact, a lot of the apparent paradoxes about how our minds work begin to make sense if we consider things from an evolutionary perspective. An evolutionary perspective also emphasizes continuity, which was one of the themes last month when I talked with Evan Thompson about his book, Mind in Life. He emphasized the continuity between life and mind and the idea that the evolution of the mind represents an expansion of the same processes that make life unique. Damasio's latest book looks at this idea from a very concrete perspective. The Brain Science Podcast is sponsored by Audible.com, the world's leading provider of downloadable audiobooks, including Self Comes to Mind by Antonio Damasio. So if you aren't already a member, you can get this or any other book for free by going to audiblepodcast.com forward slash brain science. Before I start talking about Self Comes to Mind, I want to say a few words about Antonio Damasio. Dr. Damasio is a neurologist who has spent much of his career working with patients who have damage to the frontal lobes of the brain. He was one of the pioneers who helped us to appreciate the role emotion plays in normal behavior and especially in decision-making. His 1999 book, The Feeling of What Happens, was one of the books that inspired me to start the Brain Science Podcast. So needless to say, I eagerly awaited his latest book, Self Comes to Mind, Constructing the Conscious Brain. 
This title really captures the essence of the book, but that will become clear as we go along. For those of you who have read Demacia's older work, I should mention that early on in this book, Demacio explicitly says he has changed his mind about several key ideas, most significantly with regard to recognizing the subcortical origins of emotions. I really respect this because it is not uncommon for scientists to cling to their personal theories even after the evidence has passed them by. One of the things I really appreciate about this book is the way that Damasio bases his positions, both old and new, on the current scientific evidence. Early on in Self Comes to Mind, Damasio explains that one of the goals of this book is to describe his current thinking and to address two key questions. One, how does the brain construct a mind? And two, how does the brain make the mind conscious? In Damasio's discussion of these two questions, two key ideas stood out for me. One was that the mind and probably consciousness have their origins in the subcortical circuits of the brain. Secondly, according to Damasio, the key feature that makes the mind conscious is what he calls the self process. I'm going to be coming back to these key ideas often. Damasio begins self comes to mind with a brief consideration of consciousness. He emphasizes several key ideas. One is that consciousness is not mere wakefulness. Obviously, as a neurologist, he has a great deal of experience in this area because there are many neurological conditions in which one can see wakefulness in the absence of consciousness. On page four, he defines consciousness as a mind endowed with subjectivity. Later in the book, he settles on a definition that is very consistent with what you would find in a psychology textbook. He says on page 157, consciousness is a state of mind in which there is a knowledge of one's existence and of the existence of one's surroundings. He doesn't share the common philosopher's assumption that consciousness can't be defined. On page 8, he says, I believe that conscious minds arise when a self-process is added to a basic mind process. So in Damasio's view, the difference between mind and consciousness is all about the self. He defines mind as the process by which the brain creates images based on its maps, both of the body and of the world but he says that the mind is unconscious until it has a sense of self. On page 10, he says that the decisive step is making the image ours. He sees this new sense of self as a key turning point in evolution, but he also sees it as a gradual process. On page 11, he says, when the brain manages to introduce the knower into the mind, subjectivity follows. This sounds like a common sense approach to the problem, but subjectivity is anathema to many scientists, which is probably why the question of how it arose has been avoided by almost everyone. Instead, the focus has been on studying things like perception, which are regarded as objective phenomena and therefore proper to study. Early on, Damasio also acknowledges that Jacques Panksepp has long pioneered the view that emotions and feelings lie at the root of consciousness. After all, if you're going to talk about subjectivity, you can't ignore emotions. Now, based on Damasio's definition, 
minds have existed for a long time, but they weren't conscious. He says, a mind unwitnessed is still a mind. The key idea is that mind developed independently of consciousness, or at least before it. They're both rooted in the physical processes of the brain, which itself evolved to maintain life. You might object that this approach goes against our intuition that the mind is something non-physical. Damasio addresses this objection on page 13 by saying, Our direct view of mind depends in part on that very mind, a self-process that we have good reason to believe cannot provide a comprehensive and reliable account of what is going on. He prefers a scientific approach rather than the introspection of philosophy. Thus far, according to Damasio, the neurobiology of consciousness has been based on three perspectives. One is the direct first person. Second, we have behavioral, that is observing what others do. And third, we have studying the brain. He proposes that we need to add a fourth perspective, which is the evolutionary perspective that considers the incremental emergence of behavior, mind, and self. But he also makes it very clear that his working hypothesis is that mental events are equivalent to brain events. This is summed up on page 17, where he says, Using the fourth perspective, I can now rephrase some of the statements made earlier in a way that takes into account facts from evolutionary biology and includes the brain. Countless creatures for millions of years have had active minds happening in their brain, but only after those brains developed a protagonist capable of bearing witness did consciousness begin in the strict sense, and only after those brains developed language did it become widely known that minds did exist. The witness is something extra that reveals the presence of implicit brain events we call mental. Understanding how the brain produces that something extra, the protagonist we carry around and call self, or me, or I, is an important goal of the neurobiology of consciousness. Okay, so what about mind? According to Damasio, mind emerges when the activity of small circuits is organized across large networks to compose momentary patterns. And these patterns might represent either the external world or something within the organism. These patterns are what he calls brain maps. In addressing the problem of how the brain makes the mind conscious, Damasio specifies that he is approaching the problem from what he calls the large-scale systems level, the level at which macroscopic brain regions constituted by neuron circuits interact with other regions to form systems. This level of analysis allows the use of many research tools, including imaging. His basic approach also relies on evolutionary biology. Then he proposes that the problem of consciousness needs to be broken down into components that neuroscience can study, and he thinks there are two researchable domains. One is the mind process, and the other is self-processes, with the self-processes being broken into subtypes. Before I get into these ideas in a lot of detail, I want to give you a preview of the main ideas. First, Damasio acknowledges that the body is the foundation of the conscious mind. He also says that the brain's 
protocell structures are literally and inextricably linked to the body. He contends that the first and most elementary product of what he calls the protoself is primordial feelings, which I'll explain shortly. A key feature of what Damasio calls primordial feelings is that their origins are in the brainstem, not in the cerebral cortex. Also, on page 22, he says, brains begin building conscious minds not at the level of the cerebral cortex, but at the level of the brainstem. He acknowledges that Jacques Panksepp and Rudolfo Linnaeus were early proponents of this unconventional position. He also observes that there's no external conductor because the conductor sort of emerges from the process. He says, conscious minds result from the smoothly articulated operation of several, often many, brain sites. He says that two of the recognizable achievements of consciousness are managing and safekeeping life efficiently, because this is the fundamental premise for biological value. We know that the molecules that we now associate with reward and punishment evolved long before the mind, let alone consciousness. They were the earliest signals for maintaining homeostasis, which is what we talked about last month with Evan Thompson. Later on, mammals evolved minds, which became more complex, and as memory and reason expanded, the self-processes also enlarged in their scope. The basic viewpoint of self comes to mind is probably summed up on page 28, where Damasio writes, The history of consciousness cannot be told in the conventional way. Consciousness came into being because of biological value as a contributor to more effective value management. But consciousness did not invent biological value or the process of valuation. Eventually, in human minds, consciousness revealed biological value and allowed the development of new ways and means of managing it. This is an important idea that we will also come back to. So the basic argument of self comes to mind is that first there was the brain, then the brain evolved the processes to create mind. Eventually, the brain was also able to create self, where mind plus self processes equals consciousness. Remember that the basic questions that Damasio attempts to answer are, how does the brain construct a mind, and how does the brain make the mind conscious. Now, before he can talk about how the brain creates mind, Damasio introduces the idea of homeostasis, the basic idea that life has to keep itself within a fairly narrow set of parameters. We talked about this last month with Evan Thompson. Even a unicellular organism has everything it needs to maintain homeostasis. When multicellular organisms began to move, control became more complex, which led to neurons and eventually brains. The key idea here is that the brain is inextricably part of the body. And as Damasio says, the brain is all about the body. And remember, neurons are cells. 
So another key idea is that homeostasis is the origin of value. Next, Damasio starts describing map making as the key mechanism by which the brain creates mind. Note, his definition of a map is a pattern of neuronal firing. It doesn't have to be topographical. Map making begins subcortical. This is a key idea that's not widely appreciated. And he explains in the book how maps are found. There are visual maps in the superior colliculi, and there are actually auditory maps in the inferior colliculi of the brainstem. Because the superior colliculi is the first place which information also comes in from above the neck, from the head, this is the point at which he says on page 68, the activity of the superior colliculi may be a precursor of mind and self-processes. On page 71, he describes the process of a mind as the continuous flow of images from these maps. He says, minds are a subtle flowing combination of actual images and recalled images in ever-changing proportions. Another key idea is that minds can be either non-conscious or conscious. And of course, we also know that much of what our minds do is unconscious, but we'll come back to that at the end. The first obvious question is, well, what parts of the brain create the mind? It's actually easier to determine which parts aren't needed. We know this from patients who have had various injuries and damages. So we know that we don't need the spinal cord to be conscious, the cerebellum, not even the hippocampus, even though if you don't have your hippocampus, you can't make new memories. You don't need even the primary sensory cortex, even though it does make images. On page 75, he says explicitly, I believe that the mind is not made by the cerebral cortex alone. And he acknowledges that Jacques Panksepp has been a lone voice championing the idea that, quote, mind processing begins in the brainstem, end quote. Damasio focuses on two subcortical nuclei, the tractus solitaris and the parabrachial nucleus. These feed into the periaqueductal gray, which is the area that Jacques Panksepp has studied extensively. Damasio says that these generate the feelings that go along with life's events, and that these feelings are probably what he calls the primordial constituents of mind based on direct signaling from the body. On page 77, he says, These important brainstem nuclei do not produce mere virtual maps of the body. They produce felt states. And if pain and pleasure feel like something, these are the structures we first have to thank, along with the motor structures with which they incessantly loop back to the body, namely those of the periaqueductal gray nuclei. After that, Damasio launches into a description of the three lines of evidence that have led him to this unconventional conclusion, which is different from what he used to believe. One is that bilateral destruction of the insula does not cause complete abolition of feelings. Now, this is important because a lot of people think that this is where the feelings come from because this is an important cortical structure that's involved in interoception or information about the state of the body. But this is not the primary structure, because if you 
destroy the insula, people do still have feelings. Secondly, and this is very convincing, is the fact that children born without cerebral cortices are not vegetative. They are awake and behaving. Now, this is really kind of strange, but basically, these are people that have been born without any cerebral cortex. And it used to be that babies like this always died early on, but now that we have such good supportive care, some of them do actually live for quite a while. They live on the functions of the brainstem. They have emotions. You can tell what they like and dislike. Their families can tell if they're awake or if they have a seizure, they describe that as a different, you know, not their kind of behavior. So if this is the case, then the cerebral cortex probably is not the source, or at least not the original source. Finally, the superior colliculi, which is a part of the brainstem that shows primitive mapping abilities, Isolated destruction of the superior colliculi does abolish all signs of feeling. Going back over these one at a time, most people have assumed that emotional feelings are produced in the cerebral cortex, starting deep in the medial structure known as the insula. Remember that we talked about the role of the anterior insula in disgust back in episode 86. So it's been predicted that the insula is an essential cortical structure for feeling emotions. Now, it's very rare to survive bilateral damage to this deep structure, but Damasio and his colleagues have documented several cases where the damage was confirmed on MRI. And to their surprise, the patients continue to experience pleasure and pain as well as to feel emotions. I think this discovery was a key turning point in Damasio's beliefs on this, and I'm going to try to put a link to that paper in the show notes. So it appears that feelings of pleasure and pain are coming from the tractus solitaris and the parabrachial nucleus. It turns out that these two brainstem nuclei get inputs from all over, including each other, and they also communicate with the periaqueductal gray, which is the origin of the emotional responses that have been studied by Panksepp. Even more surprising is the fact that, as I described, children born with no cerebral cortex are not vegetative. They are awake and behaving. Their faces show emotions. They smile and laugh when they're tickled. They move toward the things they want. They seem to have likes and dislikes for things like music. So all this has to be happening subcortically. Damasio asserts that they show some evidence of mind. He says on page 82 that these children give some evidence of mind is not in doubt. He also comments that they might even have a very modest level of consciousness, but that this is not testable. He bases this on the fact that when they have a seizure, there's a marked change in their level of awareness. On page 82, he concludes that the existence of this condition gives lie to the claim that sentience, feeling, and emotions arise only in the cerebral cortex. Damasio also notes, and this is important, that these children have little in common with patients who are in a vegetative state or who exhibit what is called a kinetic mutism. Instead, they are more like newborns. In fact, before brain imaging, their condition might not be diagnosed until they're several months old. 
So these first two lines of evidence are negative. That is, they tell us what the cortex doesn't do. But the third is positive, which is to say that we have evidence that the brain stem can do what Damasio said is required to produce mind. The superior colliculi are located in the highest part of the midbrain, which is part of the brainstem. The superficial layers process vision, but the deeper layers contain maps of vision, auditory, and somatic information in spatial register. In fact, this is the only place in the body where this information is literally superimposed, which allows integration, and also there is easy access to the ever-famous periaqueductal gray. Given that this is where map making first appears, Damasio concludes, some of the beginnings of mind are probably found here and the beginnings of self might be found here too. Now, as you might expect, since this part of the brain is so close to the parts of the brain that keep us alive, isolated damage to the superior colliculi is extremely rare. However, there has been at least one case and it resembled a kinetic mutism, which tells us that the superior colliculi is essential to consciousness. Normally, the superior colliculi make minimal contributions, but its contributions are occasionally revealed in phenomena like blind sight. However, it's likely that they play a larger role when the cortices are missing, and of course in animals that don't have developed cortices. Another fact that supports the contention that the superior colliculi contributes to the mind is the fact that they oscillate in the gamma range, and this is the only place outside the cortex where this can happen, and is thought to be important for synchronization of neuronal firing. So to summarize what we've talked about so far, Damasio concludes that mind-making is a highly selective process that does not involve the entire nervous system. He also says on page 86, all regions involved in mind-making have highly differentiated patterns of interconnectivity, suggestive of very complex signal integration. The cortical mind-making sites are clusters of interlocked regions that are organized around the port of entry for inputs from what he calls the peripheral sensory probes, in other words, areas where sensory information is integrated, whereas the subcortical mind-making sites involve intensely interlocked clusters of nuclei that are organized around inputs from the body itself. This massive interconnectivity is essential and synchronous firing is thought to be essential for relating the maps to each other, which is what philosophers call binding. There are many researchers that are exploring the role of things like the recursive signaling and reentry circuits, but that's obviously beyond the scope of our discussion today. I do, however, want to emphasize the importance of mapping. Damasio concludes his early discussion by saying that mind-making is based on anatomical specificity, but that No one brain region creates mind, but various regions do have specific tasks, i.e. functional specificity. Now, let's spend a little bit more time talking about the relationship between the mind and the body. Damasio notes that before consciousness became a central issue in mind and brain research, the mind-body problem dominated the debate. Remember that according to Damasio, it's via map-making that the body becomes the content of the mind process. 
He says that the body and the mind are woven together because the brain is all about the body. Damasio considers this to be a critical component of creating a self. This is, it seems to me, somewhat ironic since we're used to hearing the advice, you're not your body. So let's talk a little bit more about body mapping. We've talked quite a bit about the brain's ability to create maps that represent information about the body. But there is a tendency to focus on the cortical maps. It's important to realize that the mapping begins long before the cerebral cortex. And communication between the brain and the body is a two-way street. The brain sends both neural and chemical signals to the body, and it also receives chemical and neural signals from the body. An important type of mapping is called interoception, which tells the brain what's going on internally. Extraoception tells it the state of the skeletal muscles in motion. These are in addition to the maps of the sensory information about the world outside the body. And we've talked about this many times in the past, but it bears repeating everything that the mind, brain, knows, it knows via the body. Of course, there is a qualitative aspect to feeling one's body. I say of course because I want to emphasize that this qualitative aspect is intrinsic to the system. I mean, to me, it seems that the hard problem of subjectivity and why things feel like something disappears if we take this into account. At any rate, Damasio's focus is scientific rather than philosophical. He acknowledges the subcortical origins of qualitative experience, which I think represents a change in position for him and acknowledgement of Pangsep's long-standing position. On page 100, he says, The machinery of emotion located in the nuclei of the periaqueductal gray is likely to influence processing of body signals at the level of the parabrachial nucleus directly and indirectly. On page 101, he says, One cannot fully explain subjectivity without knowing about the origin of feelings and acknowledging the existence of primordial feelings, spontaneous reflections of the state of the living body. In my view, primordial feelings result from nothing but the living body and precede any interaction between the machinery of life regulation and any object. Primordial feelings are based on the operation of upper brainstem nuclei, which are part and parcel of the life regulation machinery. Primordial feelings are the primitives for all other feelings. And we're going to be coming back to this idea of primordial feelings shortly. After establishing this basic anatomy, Damasio goes on to talk about the brain's ability to simulate what he calls his as-if body loop hypothesis. And he also spends some time describing how he thinks the discovery of mirror neurons fits into his hypothesis. For the purpose of our discussion, the key point is that he thinks that mirror neurons may be part of how the brain generates self. He sums up the role of the body on page 107. The living body is the central locus. Life regulation is the need and the motivation. Brain mapping is the enabler, the engine that transforms plain life regulation into minded regulation and eventually into consciously minded regulation. Now, for those of you that are familiar with past episodes of the Brain Science Podcast, you probably will notice how this really fits in with our ongoing discussion of the importance of embodiment. So now we're ready to talk about the main topic, 
that led me to discuss Self Comes to Mind nearly two years after its publication. But before I do, I want to take a moment to thank those of you who support the Brain Science Podcast with your donations. Your donations help me keep the podcast free and to provide things like the free episode transcripts. If you're interested in learning how you can help, just go to brainsciencepodcast.com and click on the tab labeled Donations. It's located right underneath the logo. So I'm going to talk about what Damasio now says about emotions and feelings, because this is going to be a lead-in to Jacques Panksip's interview next month. First of all, he has some definitions on page 109. He says that emotions are complex, largely automated programs of actions concocted by evolution. He gives us examples, fear, anger, sadness, and disgust. According to Damasio, feelings of emotions are composite perceptions of what happens in our body and mind when we are emoting. So he sees emotions as being active and feelings as being a form of perception, but he doesn't always stick to these distinctions consistently. However, he does something that's more important as far as I'm concerned, which is he acknowledges the subcortical origins of what he calls primordial feelings. On page 110, he says, In simple organisms capable of behavior but without a mind process, emotions can be alive and well, but states of emotional feeling may not necessarily follow. The key point is that he recognizes that the emotion-feeling cycle begins in the brain. This represents a departure from his earlier position when he really pretty much embraced what was known as the James Lang readout model, which was the idea that emotions happen when the higher centers are responding to their perception of the body. For example, heart racing makes us know we're afraid. Damasio is quite explicit about this on page 115, where he quotes something that James wrote in 1884. Those of you who've read Damasio's work know that he remains a big fan of James, but he does say that James got this part wrong. On page 117, he says, Once it becomes clear that feelings of emotion are primarily perceptions of our body state during a state of emotion, it is reasonable to say that all feelings of emotion contain a variation on the theme of primordial feelings. Whatever the primordial feelings of the moment are, augmented by other aspects of body change that may not be related to interoception. He notes that at the level of the cerebral cortex, the main region involved is the insular cortex, which is one of the older parts of the cortex. Damasio comments that drives and motivations are simpler components of emotion. I think it is these lower level drives and motivations that Pangsep presents as effective systems, but the correspondence is not exact because although Damasio has come around to appreciating the subcortical contribution to feelings, he still tends to look at things slightly differently than the way Panksup does. And this can be confusing when you're reading both of them. But after talking about the difference between feelings and emotions, Damasio discusses the areas of the cortex that are involved in feelings or perceiving emotions. The anterior insula, is very ancient from an evolutionary point of view. 
That's where disgust is processed. The back part is newer. So the anterior insula is a deep cortical structure that is involved in the perception or feeling of emotions. But it's not where things start, as we just talked about earlier. Damasio also points readers back to the evidence that we discussed earlier about the subcortical origins of emotional feelings, including the fact that the destruction of the insula does not wipe out the ability to experience emotion. So how does one feel an emotion? Recall that Damasio sees emotion as a program of action. Well, the brain is constantly gathering up what he calls a substrate of feelings as a natural part of its constant monitoring of the body. But in Damasio's view, in order for this substrate to result in a feeling state related to an emotion, the emotional response must be attended to. This is in contrast to, say, vision or hearing, which happen in our process pretty much whether or not we're paying attention. He says that there's three ways to generate the feeling of emotion. One is the body loop, paying attention to information from the body that includes the emotional state. Two is by generating as-if patterns, that is, like when we imagine a feeling state. And the third one is by altering the transmission of signals to the brain with drugs. Panksepp has done this by showing what happens when various neurotransmitters and drug-like opiates are applied to the effective circuits in the brainstem. I don't really have time to get into his rather limited discussion of specific emotions, but he does seem to accept the usual definition of six universal emotions, fear, anger, sadness, happiness, disgust, and surprise. He also talks about more complex emotional feelings like compassion. He refers to social emotions such as shame and embarrassment. But it seems to me that based on his definitions, these ought to be called feelings. But semantics aside, the origin of emotions is clearly in the brainstem, not the cortex even though obviously the complexity of human emotions requires an intact cortex. Before we introduce the self and make the leap from mind to consciousness, we need to consider one more element, which is memory. In some ways, chapter 6, which is an architecture for memory, is probably my favorite chapter because it presents a way of looking at memory that was new to me. Now, obviously, memory is essential to both mind and consciousness. Damasio presents an interesting model of how memory might work. We know that recall occurs in the same places where the experience originally occurred, but that can't be where it's stored. One reason why we know that it can't be is because when you have anterior damage to the brain, it doesn't damage perception, and the only memory deficits are for the uniqueness and specificity of the objects and scenes. Damage to a sensory cortex does prevent recall of that specific sensory modality. Damasio proposes a model that's based on the hierarchical nature of brain processes. He has something which he calls dispositions at the top, which are the assemblies that can trigger recall. These dispositions are stored in what he calls convergence-divergence zones, which is places that record the coincidence of various brain firings instead of recording everything. In other words, they sort of record who said what when. The dispositional space is made up of these zones or areas. So when a dispositional circuit's activated, it signals other circuits and causes the images or actions to be generated. Some key points. One is that this is efficient because it allows for more efficient storage, not having to actually store the whole memory. 
And also, the contents are implicit and always unconscious, as opposed to those in the image space, which are explicit. So, in Damasio's model, our memories exist in what he calls dispositional form. On page 144, he says, Our knowledge base is implicit, encrypted, and unconscious. This model is supported by neuroanatomical studies, which I don't have time to get into, so I have to refer you to the book, and I also will try to include some references in the show notes. The model is also consistent with the fact that recall stimulates many regions of the brain. Again, because of time constraints, I have to refer you back to Chapter 6 for more details, including Damasio's take on the grandmother cell controversy. The key idea is that this model posits two different spaces for memory, the explicit image space versus the dispositional space. This points to their different evolutionary ages. Early on, dispositions would have been adequate to guide behavior. For example, a reflex, the withdrawal reflex in the Aplesia snail, if you touch it in a certain place, it withdraws. It doesn't know anything about what's touched it. It doesn't have any information. It's just like a reflex. That would be an example of a very simple disposition. On the other hand, images, which means mind, came much later. So after establishing the subcortical origins of mind and the subcortical origins of feelings and emotions, Damasio takes on consciousness. He begins his discussion with a chapter entitled Consciousness Observed, which captures the essence of his definition of consciousness. On page 157, he says, Consciousness is a state of mind in which there is knowledge of one's own existence and the existence of one's surroundings. He considers consciousness to be a particular state of mind. He says, also on page 157, Consciousness is a state of mind with a self-process added to it. His definition of consciousness is consistent with the one given in the textbook Psychology by Wade and Tavris, which defines consciousness as the awareness of oneself and the environment. Another key point is that, according to Damasio, conscious mind states always have content. They contain what Damasio calls an obligate aspect of feeling. Here's a quote from page 158. Consciousness is a state of mind that occurs when we are awake and in which there is private and personal knowledge of our own existence situated relative to whatever its surround may be at a given moment. I think there might be a typo in there, but at any rate, he also states clearly that conscious states are felt. He acknowledges that he is departing from the common practice in current consciousness studies to treat mind and consciousness as the same thing. He says that he thinks that the common use of the term that assumes consciousness is mere mind is a mistake. So to emphasize, Damasio sees consciousness as being mind plus, mind plus the self-process. Thus, consciousness is more than being awake. But of course, you have to be awake to be conscious. According to Damasio, consciousness requires, one, you're awake, two, you have an operational mind, that is one that makes images, and three, what he calls an automatic, unprompted, unreduced sense of self. On page 161, he explains that patients that are in a persistent vegetative state are not 
subconscious, even if they have sleep-awake cycles. This is in contrast to people who are in a coma who don't have sleep-awake cycles, and they know this via EEG. Now, on page 162, he discusses the fMRI studies by Adrian Owen, which include a well-known case that he reported where a patient in an apparent vegetative state was able to demonstrate different kinds of brain activities when asked to visualize different behaviors. I think she was asked to visualize playing tennis and asked to visualize walking around her house or something like that. According to Damasio, she did not demonstrate the same pattern on retesting. But there was at least one patient who could be trained to answer yes or no questions by visualizing these different activities. However, he comments that this is a demonstration that mind processes can operate in the absence of consciousness, but he's reluctant to take this as evidence of conscious communication. He also goes on to describe what he regards the most convincing evidence for what he calls the disassociation between wakefulness and mind on the one hand and self on the other, and this is epileptic automatisms. What happens is a patient has a seizure and they black out. Afterward, they appear to wake up and they move about doing things like, for example, drinking a glass of water, but they don't show any awareness of their surroundings or other people. And then when they come completely to, they don't remember anything. So during the automatism, the patient's clearly awake because he can do things like pick up a cup. So he clearly has a mind, but he doesn't have any sense of self. One of the things that's interesting is that during this sort of behavior, there is no sign of emotion. On page 165, Damasio says, Such cases provide powerful evidence, perhaps the only definitive evidence yet, for a break between the two functions, wakefulness and mind, and another function, self, which by any standards is not available during the autonomism. But we should remember also that wakefulness and mind aren't all-or-nothing things. They are processes. But being awake and having a mind and having a self are different brain processes. This is why Damasio says that consciousness is the result of adding a self-function to mind. The other key feature of consciousness is that it feels like something. One reason we know that this is important is that people with disorders of consciousness often fail to show ongoing emotion. And it's also important to realize this has nothing to do with language. On page 167, he asks, why are emotions a telltale sign of consciousness? And he says it's because experience of bodily feelings are a deep and vital part of consciousness. Again, I want to emphasize that consciousness is not an all-or-nothing phenomenon. It ranges in scope from the minimal sensing of oneself to the complex consciousness of humans. To capture this scope, Damasio has named the extremes. He has what he calls core consciousness, which he describes as having a sense of self in the here and now without a sense of past or future, and autobiographical consciousness, which includes both personhood and identity. He says that he now sees consciousness as far more mercurial than I first envisioned. In fact, our level of consciousness naturally fluctuates with this situation. For example, if I'm watching my dogs play with each other, I'm probably not engaging my autobiographical consciousness because it would be a waste of brain power. But if I'm at a job interview, I probably do need to engage my autobiographical consciousness quite a bit. And we all experience times when our consciousness is not necessarily engaged in the place it's needed, such as when our mind wanders when somebody's giving us directions that we might need later. 
Obviously, this way of thinking about consciousness allows for consciousness to exist in many non-human species. On page 171, he says, No one can satisfactorily prove that non-human, non-languaged beings have consciousness, core or otherwise, although it is reasonable to triangulate the substantial evidence we have available and conclude that it is highly likely that they do. Damasio says that he is ready to take any manifestation of animal behavior that suggests the presence of feelings as a sign that consciousness is not far behind. He emphasizes that core consciousness does not require language. So after acknowledging the importance of consciousness, Damasio returns to his evolutionary perspective and says we need to acknowledge what came before consciousness. That is to say that much of what the brain and the mind does is unconscious. He rejects the Freudian unconscious, but he refers to a large unconscious, which he says is made up of two ingredients, an active ingredient, which is the maps and images that are constantly being formed and updated, most of which never reach consciousness, and then the dormant ingredient, which is the repository of coded records from which explicit images can be formed. So it's a good thing most of this never reaches consciousness, or we drowned in the din. The brain takes the overabundance of inputs and tries to make a coherent narrative. This is another aspect of our limited attentional spotlight that magicians exploit. As an aside, there does seem to be a debate going on among neuroscientists about whether the human attention span can be raised by exposure to the so-called multitasking of the digital age. Damasio thinks it can, but my impression is that this view is not shared by neuroscientists who are involved in the study of perception. At any rate, taking an evolutionary approach, Damasio says on page 175, the vast unconscious probably has been part of the business of organizing life for a long, long time. So why did consciousness prevail? Obviously, knowing that one exists also implies connecting that knowledge with other memories and, most importantly, being able to better anticipate and plan for the future. This obviously would be a critical break as far as survival goes. But despite the importance of consciousness, it's important to remember that it's built on unconscious processes that are in charge of life regulation. Damasio calls these processes blind dispositions and says that they deliver the rewards and punishment that promote drive, motivation, and emotions. The map-making process is also unconscious. So consciousness is what we would call a latecomer to life management. So to sum it up, the mind is a natural result of evolution, and it is largely unconscious, internal, and unrevealed. Damasio says that his position is that consciousness offers a direct experience of mind, but the broker of experience is a self, which is an internal and imperfectly constructed informer rather than an external, reliable observer. After clearly explaining his view of consciousness, Damasio takes the conversation in a more speculative direction. He presents what he calls a working hypothesis that has two parts. This begins on page 180, where he says that the brain constructs consciousness by generating a self-process within an awake mind. The parts are the mind and wakefulness, which are indispensable, and the self. He also proposes that the self is built in stages. The first stage is the proto-self. He says that the proto-self is a neural description of relatively stable aspects of the organism. The main product of the proto-self is spontaneous feelings of the living body, which he calls primordial feelings. 
The second stage is the core self. According to Damasio, a pulse of core self is generated when the protoself is modified by an interaction between the organism and an object. And then as a result, the images of the object get modified. The modified images of the object and the organism are momentarily linked in a coherent pattern. This is described in a narrative sequence of images, some of which are feelings. Third stage, the autobiographical self, which occurs when objects in one's biography generate pulses of core self that are subsequently momentarily linked in a large-scale coherent pattern. So I'm just going to touch on a few key ideas from his hypothesis rather than getting into great detail because the show is already running quite long. First of all, Damasio sees the self-process as beginning after mind and alertness have been established. He sees human consciousness to be a result of the sequential development of mind, conscious mind, conscious mind, producing culture. Neuroscientists usually approach consciousness by talking about mind rather than self, but Damasio sees self within the conscious mind as what he calls the first representative of individual life regulation mechanisms and as the so-called guardian and curator of biological value. Damasio sees consciousness as a triad of processes, wakefulness, mind, and self. He says you can't have consciousness without wakefulness. Then next comes mind. He thinks that we can now begin to identify the neural structures that are capable of what he calls self-processes. He talks about the fact that all experience has a feeling component, but then he says the feeling of what happens is not the whole story. He acknowledges that there's something deeper going on. On page 185, he says, It is the feeling that my own body exists, and it is present independently of any of the objects with which it interacts as rock-solid, wordless affirmation that I am alive. He notes that he didn't consider this necessary in his earlier writings, but that he now sees it as a critical component of the self-process. This is what he calls primordial feeling, and he describes it as the primitive behind all emotion and the basis of all feelings. Damasio sees primordial feeling as a product of the proto-self. In a footnote, he acknowledges again the work of Jacques Panksepp. He sees his primordial feelings as something that come before the affects that Panksepp has described. Damasio says that consciousness contains a composite of images. Some are describing objects and some describe the self or me. This includes the perspective relative to objects, which is why we experience everything around us from the standpoint of our body. Then there's the feeling that the mind belongs to us and no one else, and the feeling that we have agency relative to the actions of our body. Finally, there are the primordial feelings, which signify the existence of our body independently of any interaction with the objects around us. All these images are generated by the map-making ability of the brain. I want to describe briefly what Damasio calls the protoself. A key thing is that the maps of the protoself generate not just body images, but felt body images. Damasio emphasizes that the key components of the protoself are generated below the cortex and the brainstem. They integrate interoceptive information from the body. 
And I refer you to page 192 if you want to know the specific nuclei that do this. The protocell also has cortical elements from the ancient parts of the cortex, including the insular cortex and the anterior cingulate cortex, which integrate interoceptive signals. And it also has some sensory inputs, such as vision and somatosensory. The key idea here is the brainstem is not a relay station. It actually does some signal processing and contributes to the construction of these primordial feelings. This contrasts with the traditional view that posits everything happening at the cortical level. On page 195, Damasio states explicitly, Notwithstanding the significance of the cortical component of the system, I see the brainstem component as foundational for the self-process. He also posits that the relatively stable interoceptive signals could be the source of our feeling of what he calls singularity. Because these feelings are present from early on in development, and since they're related to homeostasis, they have to stay within a really narrow range. So this could be the sense of why we feel like we've been the same person our entire life. Now, just as an aside, you might ask the question, why does it feel like we see the world through our eyes and hear through our ears? This is because sensory information includes not just the input from the retina, but also information about what our eye muscles are doing, etc. Damasio puts all this information together and calls it a sensory portal. And he includes the information from all the sensory portals as part of the protoself. So the protoself has two components, one of which is very stable and is what he calls on page 200, the infinite sameness of the narrow range of the parents related to the body's interior, because this is tightly controlled. He calls this an island of stability within a sea of motion. Now, the other component of the protoself is the infinite variety of patterns that are generated from the sensory portals. So that's the changing part. Another key idea is the idea, again, that the body and the brain remain inseparable. So the protoself is a collection of maps, but it remains connected at a very deep level with the body. I think it's also important to note that this implies that consciousness is constructed from the bottom up. The next step in his hypothesis is the constructing of the core self. He says this is where the protagonist enters the picture. So the image-making abilities of the brain reach the point where it can produce what he calls a nonverbal narrative, which reveals a protagonist. This core consciousness would include a series of images such as an image of the organism generated by the protoself, an image of what it feels like, and an image of the object one's interacting with. He says, the self comes to mind in the form of such images, relentlessly telling the story of such engagements. At the final stage, the autobiographical self can only be constructed by the core consciousness mechanism, which obviously in turn requires the protoself and its primordial feelings. I'm not going to discuss the core self in much detail. I will refer you to the book. But I do want to point out that it also appears that its origins are in the brainstem, specifically in an area called the superior colliculus, which I've mentioned before. The thalamus probably also plays a role. The main competing theories see the insular cortex as the key structure. But also remember that if this was true, bilateral destruction of the insular cortex should produce profound deficits in consciousness, 
but we already know that this does not happen. Now, with regard to the autobiographical self, which is fully developed in people, obviously memory is a key player, and there's also the importance of coordinating all the signals from all over the brain. I refer you to chapter 9 on this. I want to talk for a few minutes about his conclusions, which are in chapter 10. Damasio says that the contents of consciousness that we can access are being assembled in the early sensory and upper brain stem, what he calls the performance space. But what we experience is constantly engineered by interaction with what he calls the dispositional space, moment to moment. So the conscious brain works globally, but in a, what he calls, anatomically differentiated manner. So human consciousness requires both the cerebral cortex and the brainstem. As he says, the cerebral cortex can't do it alone. Consciousness also cannot exist without feelings. The feeling states appear to be largely generated by the brainstem, which is, of course, testable. So he is proposing a triad of consciousness consisting of wakefulness, mind, and self. The brainstem generates the key components of the protoself. It's also essential for wakefulness because that's where the ascending reticular activating system is. The periaqueductal gray and other nuclei generate emotions. And then there are still other nuclei that house what he calls the standards for biological value. He describes the brainstem as being the neural home for biological value. On page 247, he says, in all likelihood, this, the brainstem, is the place where the process of making the mind begins. Damasio says he's reluctant to venture into the thalamus, but he does talk about some of the roles which he says are not in question. For example, we've talked about before the fact that all the sensory inputs except smell go through the thalamus. The thalamus receives the wake-up signals via the brainstem, and it coordinates activity of the cortex by means of recursive feedback loops. One thing we do know for sure is that the cerebral cortex can't function without the thalamus. Finally, the cerebral cortex obviously constructs the detailed maps that create the mind, and via interaction with the brainstem and the thalamus, it generates the core self. It constructs our biography and gives us identity. So, in the end, consciousness is a global effort. If we return to the evolutionary perspective, we see that the brainstem design goes all the way back to the reptiles. The brainstem has the machinery for life regulation, elementary mind, and even simple consciousness. And since the cortex doesn't duplicate what the brainstem does, we can't live without it. The thalamus allows a two-way communication between the ancient brainstem and the new cortex. But there's sort of a bottleneck here, since it sort of controls our access to what's going on lower down. It's one of the reasons why it is difficult to access feelings. Along with being indispensable, the brainstem is also very vulnerable. Finally, Damasio emphasizes that feeling can't be omitted from our theory of consciousness. One of the major themes of this book is that feeling is, quote, an obligate and founding partner for the conscious mind, end quote. Now, because this episode is running so long, I'm not going to talk about Damasio's discussion of qualia and also the role of the unconscious, although one thing I do want to say about the unconscious, while acknowledging its importance, Damasio points out that a lot of what's in the unconscious is stuff that has been put there through training and learning. 
And it allows us to do things because, you know, if we had to concentrate on everything, for example, walking, we wouldn't be able to do anything more complicated. He emphasizes the importance of educating the unconscious so that we're going to respond the way we want. For example, he says moral behavior is a skill set. In terms of looking at what's going on with the neurons, Damasio points out that we can't have any behavior or mind without the neurons. They signal what's going on with other cells of the body, but they're still body cells, so there really can't be brain-body separation. A lot of scientists think it was movement that caused neurons and brains to evolve. So the mind is determined by the number and organization of the neurons, but it can't really be fully understood by studying the single neurons alone or by studying genetics. So returning to the evolutionary view, we have during evolution, life, homeostasis or autopoiesis is what cells do we talked about last month. The neurons, which are cells that have the ability to signal what's going on in other cells, evolve. Eventually, their connections become complex enough to generate maps, which gives us mind. And then at the next step, self comes to mind, i.e. consciousness. At this point, we have no way of knowing when consciousness evolved. So I want to close by reviewing a few of the key ideas. In Self Comes to Mind, Antonio Damasio attempts to put consciousness in an evolutionary perspective. He sees consciousness as a part of the ongoing process of life maintenance or homeostasis. As I said, we go from cells to neurons to brains to minds to consciousness. Minds happen when the brain creates images. Key idea, the mind begins in the brainstem. The mind includes emotions and feelings, also brainstem. The mind probably includes some implicit memories. Self comes to mind. That's when the mind-brain becomes conscious. Self-processes also begin subcortically, probably in the superior colliculus. While Self Comes to Mind is available from audible.com, I think it's the sort of book where you really need the physical book. As I hope you can tell by the many quotes that I have read today, Damasio's style is very readable and accessible to everyone. But there's also a lot of depth that gets revealed by rereading and studying the footnotes. Podcasts like this can only hit the high points. And because I was focusing on the role of the subcortical regions, I had to leave out a lot of other interesting material. I highly recommend this book to everyone. Now, next month, Jacques Panksepp will return to talk about his latest book, Archaeology of Mind, Neuroevolutionary Origins of Human Emotions, which is not the sort of book you can read quickly. Instead, I recommend you go back and listen to episode 65 because we're going to be expanding on the ideas we talked about in that episode. As Damasio acknowledges in Self Comes to Mind, Panksepp is a pioneer in studying the subcortical origins of emotions. His work also reminds us how much we owe to our non-human ancestors and how much we have in common with the other animals that we share the earth with now. While you're waiting for next month's episode, Don't forget to check out my other podcast, Books and Ideas. I hope to put out a new episode of Books and Ideas within the next few weeks. Every month, I remind you to visit the website, brainsciencepodcast.com, 
for episode show notes and transcripts. But now I also need to mention that all the past episodes are there, even ones that are no longer available in iTunes. You can also get all the episodes and episode transcripts by buying the Brain Science Podcast app, which is available for iPhone, iPad, and Android. With regards to my short ebook, Are You Sure? The Unconscious Origins of Certainty, it is still available only from Amazon.com. But if you send me your receipt, I will send you the PDF version for free. I want to thank those of you who have left reviews on Amazon.com. I also appreciate the word of mouth that's gone out via Twitter, Facebook, and Google+. And I want to remind you that you can also post reviews at Goodreads.com. The current version of the Brain Science Podcast Discussion Forum is located on Goodreads. We also have a fan page on Facebook and a Google Plus page. I don't want to forget to remind you that continuing education is now available for psychologists. Just visit BrainSciencePodcast.com and put CEU in the search box. Mensana Publications is currently working on making CEUs available for all of this year's episodes. When you purchase the CEU, I get a small royalty. So this is another way you can support the show while hopefully getting something you need. I sometimes get emails from people who want to support my work but would like to purchase something concrete rather than make a donation. So I'm glad to be able to expand the possibilities. Right now, there are several ways you can do this. One, there's the podcast app for the Brain Science Podcast and there's an app for books and ideas. You can buy Are You Sure? You can buy the CEUs I just talked about, or you can also buy a t-shirt or other logo gear. Now, many people are not aware of this, but all of my logo gear is made by Printfection, which means it is a very high quality, not as cheap as the stuff you get from Cafe Press, but much nicer. And there's more selection. Plus, it's a way to help spread the word about the Brain Science Podcast. I will have links to all this in the show notes, but don't forget to sign up for the Brain Science Podcast newsletter so that you can get the show notes automatically and you never miss a new episode. Finally, don't forget to send me feedback at docartemis at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Facebook or Twitter where I am Doc Artemis. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to talking with you again very soon. I've got a lot of feedback from people saying how much they hate the Brain Science Podcast theme song. So until I can get some new music, I am using the music that I have been using for Books and Ideas with the permission of Beatnik Turtle. Don't forget to visit their website at beatnickturtle.com. Beatnik is spelled with a K at the end. The Brain Science Podcast is copyright 2012, Virginia Campbell, MD. You may copy this podcast to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at docartemis at gmail.com. Thank you.